This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning. We have arrived at the last day of Sushin, apparently. And uh, also, apparently, the last Dharma talk on karma for the practice period. And uh, we'll have a little bit of a closing class, a brief closing class on the day after Shisho ceremony to wrap up our conversation. But this is the last formal talk. And I'd like to begin by sharing a, a passage from the book Midnight's Children. It's by the British-American writer of Indian descent, Salman Rushdie. Who, what, am I? My answer. I am the sum total of everything that went before me. All I have been, seen, done of everything done to me. I am everyone, everything, whose being in the world affected and was affected by mine. I am anything that happens after I've gone, which would not have happened if I had not come. Nor am I particularly exceptional in this matter. Each I Every one of the now 600 million plus of us contains a similar multitude. I repeat for the last time, to understand me, you'll have to swallow a world. I find this passage a wonderful summation of dependent origination and karma. Although I, I'm not so sure that it was Rushdie's intention to invoke karma when he wrote it. So I wonder, do you feel as if, during our study of karma, this ongo, that to understand your own karma, the sum total of everything that went before you, of all you have been, seen, done, of everything done to you, that you have to swallow a world. Or maybe multiple worlds. And through our study of karma, do you have any more sense, any more of a sense, that each one of us also contains a similar multitude? Do you see that in each other when you look at each other? Who, what am I? If not the entire world, the entire universe, arising and falling in all ten directions and three times, past, present, future, simultaneously. The immensity and complexity and unfathomability of karma, vast. 
It's understandable that the Buddha would warn us that comprehending the workings and implications of karma are beyond the mind's reach and could lead to vexation and madness. To understand karma, you'll have to swallow a world. How big is your mind? Rushdie's passage reminds me of a, a quote by Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, during my university years, I considered myself an existentialist, and one of my heroes at the time was Jean-Paul Sartre. And I, I made it a point even to visit the grave sites of Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir when I uh, first visited Paris. And I think that my, my study and my uh, embrace of existentialism laid the ground for my later embrace of Buddhism after college. And uh, Sartre uh, here using the male pronoun for all of mankind as was the habit of his time says the following. Man is nothing else but what he purposes. He exists only insofar as he realizes himself. He is therefore nothing else but the sum of his actions. Nothing else but what his life is. So while Sartre was not a Buddhist, uh, what he says here resonates with the Buddhist teaching of karma, which tells us we are our actions. We are the totality of our actions. An action, as you know, it has three aspects. What you think, what you say, what you do. And Sartre's uh, declaration, however, leaves out the detail of thoughts on which our speech and actions are based. So we could amend Sartre's uh, statement to say a person is the sum of their thoughts, words, and acts. And as we know, when you produce an action, you produce karma. Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, karma is your continuation. Karma is your continuation. Even when you die and your body disintegrates, you continue always due to your actions. Nothing is lost in this universe. According to the law of conservation of energy, you cannot create new energy, nor lose energy. So everything we produce in terms of body, speech, and action will continue after us. Don't imagine they will disappear. Everything you do will have its signature. Everything you say carries your signature. You are the author, and that is your continuation. So the question we are left with is, how do we want to live if our living results in a continuation of us, of this life energy in some form? And furthermore, if our life now is the sum and continuation of our past actions, and if in our life now we experience unhappiness and suffering, then how do we want to live now so that going forward we will experience a continuation or a new form in which there is greater happiness 
and less suffering. I sometimes wonder, what would I be doing now if I wasn't fully dedicating my life and work to the Buddha way? And furthermore, what would the world be like now if the Buddha had never been born? If all his wise and compassionate teachings had not resonated with, impacted, and powerfully transformed my life and the lives of millions of people, cultures, and nations over 2,500 years? What shape would the world be taking now without the influence of his karma and life stream? And how would the world be if you had never been born? Think of your parents, who maybe would not be parents. Of your friends and partners of the span of your life thus far. Of all of your activities and the ways that they have left some ripple, however small, in the great river of being, mixing with and affecting the movement dance, and flow of other currents. But the Buddha was born, and lived, and had impact on the world. You have been born, and live, and have impact on the world. What do you want your continuation to be? What wake of life energy do you want to leave behind? To what purpose do you want your life force to serve? If you knew this was your very last birth, how would you be living now? celebrate Shakyamuni Buddha's birthday. We're told the Buddha was born in, you know, circa 487 BCE, and he died at the age of 80s. So this would be approximately his 2,588th birthday. That's a lot of candles. And in terms of samsara, the endless cycle of birth, death, and rebirth, the birth we're celebrating was the Buddha's last one. It was his final rebirth. Due to his deep desire and quest to be ultimately free of relentless suffering that comes with birth and death, and the insights into the nature of reality and rebirth that he had on the night of his awakening, Siddhartha Gautama discovered a path leading off of the wheel of samsara and discovered the truth of karma, the nature of karma, how to work with karma, and the path to going beyond and ending karma. And we're to understand he was forever done with rebirth, and after his parinirvana, he never took birth again. 
Although if we take a page from Thich Nhat Hanh on what happens after death, then the Buddha never went away. He's still with us. He's with us in his words and teachings that have been passed down to us. He's with us in the air we breathe. We're still breathing the same air as the Buddha breathed. He's with us in the flowers we smell, in the sunlight that warms us. He is still being reborn, although not as a karmic eddy, not as a continuation of volitional compulsion set in motion by ignorance, but as something beyond karma. To my mind, because we are practicing, the Buddha is still practicing. We are all Buddhas, studying and practicing what it is to be Buddhas. Buddha is alive in the practice of each and every one of us. I expect you're all familiar with the traditional story of the Buddha's last incarnation in life, how he was born a prince into a wealthy Brahmin family, and his name, Siddhartha Gautama, and he lived a sheltered life until the age of 29 when he encountered what is known as the Four Messengers. In the first three figures, uh, an old person, a sick person, and a corpse brought into focus for him the realities of old age, sickness, and death. And the fourth figure, a wandering monk, ignited in Gautama a series of questions regarding how he himself was bound to the endless karmic cycle of old age, sickness, and death, and rebirth. In the Majjhima Nikaya, he is quoted as saying, what if I, being subject myself to aging, illness, death, sorrow, defilement, seeing the drawbacks of aging, illness, death, sorrow, defilement, were to seek the agingless, illnessless, deathless, sorrowless, unexcelled rest from the yoke, unbinding. So when Buddha describes his search for the undefiled, unexcelled rest from the yoke, the yoke that is unbinding, he is referring to liberation from the cycle of transmigration. And compelled by these questions, he immediately left his sheltered life and became a wandering seeker of a way beyond the chains of rebirth. And the story goes that Gautama wandered in the wilderness for six years, practicing with various teachers of alternate religious sects and excelling at various meditation techniques that were taught to him. And he, he even spent a number of years uh, practicing extreme asceticism uh, as a way to be free of clinging to the body, as some traditions of the time believed that the body was heavy with karma. Karma had a stickiness to it. And by denying the body, one could lighten the, the, uh, one's karma. However, after becoming severely emaciated and exhausted and on the verge of death, due to these practices, Gautama 
abandon such practices and saw the metal way. And then prompted by a childhood memory, he seated himself in meditation under a Bodhi tree and was determined not to rise again until he achieved complete understanding and liberation. So quite a central place in the Buddhist tradition is shown by Shakyamuni Buddha's own pivotal awakening, which consisted primarily of his seeing the full range and extent of karma, including that nothing in the universe stands outside of karma's domain. In the Manjimandakaya Sutta uh, describes how once the Buddha's mind was purified by concentration after he had sat down, his enlightenment unfolded in three phrases, phases, what uh, is traditionally called three higher knowledges. And these knowledges each eventually served as the foundations for his particular view and teaching of karma. So first he had a recollection, recollect, recollection of his manifold past lives in their various modes. And including it said, such details as his name in each of his lives, the clans, the family he, he was part of, his various appearances that he took, the food he ate, his experiences of pleasure and pain, and how his life ended in each of these hundreds of thousands of incarnations. So he had that much detail, recollection. recollection. And this recollection was then followed by a second vision, that of countless other beings who, like him, were also enduring the cycle of transmigration. Again, that cycle of transmigration is this process in which we are repeatedly reborn in the world over and over. And this particular insight allowed Gautama to observe how karma, or one's actions, determines the circumstances of their rebirth. But what the Buddha essentially gained through his second knowledge was an understanding of the chain of dependent origination. How it is that our volitional actions are what spin the wheel of samsara for us. So he gained knowledge into the dynamics of how karma, in conjunction with the basic defilements of ignorance and craving, brings about rebirth. And it was his second insight into the truth of cause and effect that directed his third insight, which was that one state of mind when committing an action, that is, one's views and one's intentions, significantly influence the results of the action. So in other words, one's right and wrong views are intimately related to their behavior and to the repercussions of their actions. And it was this process of thinking that thus led Gautama to observe within his own mind how particular views led to distress and suffering or dukkha. And when he stopped these views, his distress and suffering stopped. And the most distressing and harmful view of all, Gautama noticed, was the identification of oneself with one's body, 
sensations, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. In other words, the five skandhas. Gautama realized that even the concept of the of a independent autonomous I that we so clearly cherish is nothing but the product of karmic forces. Anjan Tanasaraho, uh, in commenting on the Buddha's insight into the three knowledges, said that this last insight led to this second insight led to Gautama concerning the possibility that karma was primarily a mental process rather than a physical one, which uh, traditionally the Hindu um, belief was more of that line. Therefore, Gautama used his own mind as, you will, a, lama, a laboratory. And so he studied the mental phenomena you know, in his mind that led to negative karma. And therefore, unfortunate rebirths. And uh, this negative karma was called uh, asavas, which can be translated as fermentations or defilements. So here is a passage of how the Buddha describes his seeing into the third knowledge, which, which was his final insight and the one that led to his awakening. And this passage uses uh, dukkha uh, uh, for suffering, unsatisfactory or stress. When the mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of the ending of the mental defilements. I discerned, as it was actually present, that this is dukkha. This is the origination of dukkha. This is the sensation of dukkha. This is the way leading to the sensation, of, to the cessation of dukkha. These are defilements. This is the origination of defilements. This is the cessation of defilements. This is the way leading to the cessation, cessation of defilements. My heart, thus knowing, thus seeing, was released from the defilement of sensuality, released from the defilement of becoming, released from the defilement of ignorance. Those are the three taints that we just listed. With release, there was the knowledge released. I discern that birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done. And another translation of the last line goes, knowledge arose in me and insight. My freedom is certain. This is my last birth. Now there is no rebirth. So the third knowledge is described as the knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering. And tradition, as you recall, has it that the timing of his final insight into the nature of karma and freedom uh, from karma coincided with the appearance of the morning star on the horizon. And at that moment, Gautama woke up, finally resolving his spiritual question and achieving his goal, and thus becoming the awakened one, or Buddha. He was fully liberated from the cycle of transmigration and would not be reborn. 
Now, according to the Theravada version of the Buddha's enlightenment, as it's uh, recounted in the Dhammapada, upon realizing release from samsara, Shakyamuni Buddha is reported to have declared, House builder, you're seen through. You will never again build another house. Your rafters are broken, the ridgepole knocked down. All has returned to the unformed. The mind has come to an end of craving. In the Buddha's expression, we get a sense of what it was that facilitated his, his insight. The turnkey practice of finally seeing through and letting go of the components that give rise to a sense of a separate self. And a traditional way to interpret the term house builder is as representing the twelvefold chain of dependent origination, which we recall is the, again, was the second of the three knowledges that the Buddha had that night. And the Buddha said that it's the structure of the twelvefold chain of causation that gives rise to the entirety of conditioned existence, the whole mass of suffering. Interestingly, the uh, original meaning of both the Sanskrit and Pali words for, for karma means to build. So the house builder is that which creates the entire structure of karmic or conditioned human existence. It creates worlds, in other words. And another way we can interpret the term house builder is a more, uh, in a more contemporary sense of a manifestation of ego. So the Buddha is claiming that in his awakening, he finally saw the way in which the egoic self continues to build and maintain its house of cards. And the ridgepole belief in a separate self and its rafters of reinforcing habit patterns with the Buddha's insight have been shattered. And with that, the entire edifice collapses. All has returned to the unformed, the Buddha said. The mind has come to an end of craving. An awakened being comes to the end of becoming. Such a one, the Buddha said, has come to the end of karma. And of course, however, the, the energy of the previous karmic impulses and results may still need to exhaust themselves after one's awakening in such a way that um, a top, uh, if one starts, stops engaging with it after it's been set into uh, an motion, will keep spinning until the residual force fades and the, the top finally collapses, like the house of uh, the self of which the Buddha spoke. But enlightened beings, the Buddha said, do not generate new karma from their actions. So this is why the Buddha continued to live and act and teach for 45 years after his enlightenment, compassionately sharing his understanding with others. And he said that he taught one thing, and only one thing, the nature of suffering and the cessation of suffering. And thus he formulated his teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path 
so that people themselves could find a way to realization. I hope you find uh, you found this detailed view of the specific insights on the nature of karma that led to uh, Shakyamuni Buddha's awakening interesting and helpful. Uh, you know, it, it was sometimes since I had read them, and I again could see how just the whole this whole process of studying karma really uh, helped to bring to him his profound change of, of mind and understanding. So for the remainder of my talk, I'd like to uh, briefly say a few things in regard to how we ourselves might work with karma and go beyond or end karma in the light of the Buddha's presentation of the path out of samsara. And as you recall, I had hoped to speak to this in our last class before Sushin, uh, but we ran out of the time discussing collective karma. So I promised I'd try to weave this in during Sushin. So here's a very abbreviated version. I'm sorry, I don't have any slides to go with it. So you can just kind of project them onto the screen in your mind, you know, whatever you visualize as I, as I speak. So use the blue background and the white lettering, please. And you can have whatever images you'd like. So understanding karma as well as um, rebirth and transmigration as it was originally presented by the Buddha and in the context of his um, formulation of the Four Noble Truth brings insight and clarity particularly to the Eightfold Path, right? which is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. And the Eightfold Path is comprised, as you may know, if you may recall, entirely of wholesome factors. Right view, right aspiration, right speech, right intent, uh, action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And this practice derives, therefore, from the power of karma to create wholesome results from wholesome states. So, looking at the, uh, the uh, Eightfold Path, three of the factors of the path are related to ethical conduct, the sila right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And these three factors are based on not doing unskillful action. And then the five other factors have to do with wisdom and meditation. So wisdom or prajna consists of right view, which means essentially to understand the Four Noble Truths as well as having a, a non-discriminating awareness of cause and effect and right intention, sometimes called right aspiration, which entails the intentions of three, actually. Uh, renunciation, meaning renouncing what is unnecessary or unskillful, as well as the intention of loving kindness and compassion. And then there's the pillar of meditation, samadhi, which entails right effort. And we, we uh, talked about right effort very briefly in class, to guard against and abandon unwholesome mind and behavioral states, and to develop and maintain wholesome states. And then there is right mindfulness, which pertains to noticing our experience of body, feeling tone, mind states, and uh, dharmic principles. And then finally we have right concentration, which means to abide in states of strong concentration or jhanas, 
And these five factors pertain to the purification of the mind. And the Buddha taught that by following the Eightfold Path, you will change the direction of your life by changing your intentional actions and your reactions. And so the, the path is a framework for clearly understanding, seeing your actions, reactions, and the unfolding of karma. And your actions and reactions change as your thoughts change, as your thoughts become more so-called virtuous, and your mind becomes less distracted, and your wisdom deepens. So by practicing according to the Eightfold Noble Path, unwholesome desire and self-grasping have no channel through which to function. And because of that, they're eliminated. And so the three poisons of greed, hate, and delusion do not rise. With no desire, greed, uh, hatred, or delusion, there's no karma. With no karma, there are no karma results to bind the mind. With no karma to bind the mind, there emerges a state of clarity which transcends suffering. The mind which was once chained to and jerked about by desire and self-grasping becomes one that is guided by wisdom and directs actions independently of the ego's influence. An awakened mind settled in equanimity will produce no additional karma. And as no karma is created, residual karma, past karma, will simply ripen and fall away until complete liberation and freedom are realized. So through wholehearted engagement with the Eightfold Path, we can take actions that directly influence the unfolding of our karma and incline our karma towards developing a life of lasting peace and happiness. Now, according to the Buddha, there are two versions of the Eightfold Path. One that includes the three taints and one without the three taints. So again, the three taints are the taint of sensual desire, the taint of of being or becoming, and a taint of ignorance. We could think you know, taints are essentially the, a stain or a coloring that comes from the perception of a separate self. And the Buddha said that with the arising of ignorance, on which the sense of a separate self depends, there is the arising of the taints. And with the cessation of ignorance, there is the cessation of the taints. And he also said that the way leading to the cessation of taints via the Eightfold Noble Path it's, is via the Eightfold Noble Path itself. And while the Eightfold Path with taints is good, it's still with attachments. The Eightfold Path without taints is said to be the Noble Path. So in other words, we've got Two primary paths or streams for working with and ending karma. The first stream entails using karma to end karma, and the second stream entails not creating any karma at all. And the first stream of right action of using karma to end karma means 
using volitional or intentional actions in such a way that we intentionally refrain from creating unwholesome karma altogether and instead direct our mindful efforts toward creating only good or wholesome karma. So in the Buddhist perspective, refraining is itself a wholesome action. And what this means is that it's possible not to have a firm conviction in the principle of karma. You have to believe in the principle of karma, right? And you can still follow the Buddhist path and gain positive results from the various practices you take up. For instance, one can pursue mindfulness practice for the benefit of balance, quality, and peace you know, that it gives your daily life, or for the sake of bringing the mind to the present, the purpose of having a spontaneity and going with the flow. And the full path, the full practice of the path, however, is a skillful diverting of the flow of the mind from its habitual karmic streams to the stream of what's called unbinding. And the Buddha said that this kind of practice requires a willingness to cultivate right action or right karma. And right action isn't so much a matter of not doing something, particularly something harmful. It's more about seeing how you do it when it does happen. So you don't repeat the causes and conditions for that um, harmful, unskillful action going forward. And the Buddha spoke of two kinds of right action, two kinds of right karma. First is the right action which is beneficial, meritorious, more meritorious, excuse me, which means that it's karma pala, or, uh, has karma fruits, and comes back to the source of the right action and is tainted. So it's tainted by having an actor, by having an individual person that thinks she has the power to act on her own. So the, the taint is that the conceit of there being an autonomous, independent self. And the second kind of action is action which is, in a sense, not meritorious, because it's not karma, which is noble, it's liberating, right? it's the, the, the full form. And it doesn't have fruit that comes back to the author because there isn't an author. It's not tainted by having a, a power source or a center. And in other words, living, a living being can act and have it not be karma. So the first kind of right action, the right karma, has a self in it. And this is the karma which creates worlds. It's world-making karma. The other karma, the one without the conceit of a self, liberates worlds. It's not really karma. This kind of action is called right action, or the super-mundane type, the type that is world-unmaking, in the sense of unmaking the bondage quality of the world, transforming worlds towards freedom rather than reinforcing the bondage. And another way to say this is that karma with taints, the taints of desire becoming an ignorance, is still habit-forming. While karma without taints is not habit-forming. 
And uh, Kabyang Rinpoche explains that good karma done properly, created properly, is not habit-forming. It is not habit-forming because it is spontaneous, arising from a mentality where ego is not central. Habit-forming activities issue from ego obsession. So when we rest the ego a little and bypass the me, me, me thinking, we become more outwardly directed and more outwardly engaged. All this relates back to Buddhism's core, basic core, which is the problem of ego. It suggests that we are wearing an armor of egotism, egotism that holds us back from connecting with others and likewise with ourselves. So non-habit forming uh, essentially means karma doesn't spin us ar uh, around in ever-repeating and compulsive patterns of grasping and clinging, and which, as you know, subsequently leads to harmful or unwholesome behaviors. So we don't end up fabricating eddies or whirlpools of selfing. And the self as we know it is nothing more than a very stubborn habit. You can think of the self as a meta-habit. It's a vortex of psycho-emotional habit patterns that are self-perpetuating through persistent and volitional energetic impulses. And it's, again, it's the selfing we saw illustrated in the 12-fold chain of causation. Right? which depicts essentially this whole process for how the self is perpetuated moment by moment and from rebirth to rebirth over lifetimes. And it's only by interrupting or breaking this cycling, cyclical process of selfing that we become free of the spinning of samsara. And the Buddha instructed us to rely on the Eightfold Path because each step on the path entails wholesome actions that create good karma, while simultaneously not being habit-forming. So in other words, none of the steps of the helpful path revolve around selfing. They do not perpetuate the belief or sense of a being a separate self, that is, if they are done correctly. They are to be done with the right perception of anatta, non-self, dependent origination and impermanence with the understanding that we are nothing more than an aggregate of collective conditions arising and dissolving moment to moment, along with the rest of all the phenomena in the universe. So the first stream of the Eightfold Path entails using karma to end karma, using intentional action to produce only wholesome karma. As for the second, primary approach or stream to working with and ending karma, it's through non-action or non-doing. A non-activity is the opposite of karma or volitional activity. It doesn't create karma or karmic residue. And I've spoken now um, a few times about how the primary form of non-activity or non-karma that we can take up by as a means of ending karma is meditation. And so meditation is a, a non-activity of body and speech, or simply being still and silent. And then there's the non-activity of the mind, directing the mind to be still through shamatha, uh, through stopping and calming the mind's karmic activity. 
And in meditation, we're letting the mind rest, allowing attention of awareness to settle on itself in such a way that it is non-moving. And this non-movingness is how the mind no longer creates karma. So in meditation, we cease responding to the world habitually. In uh, the Shobhagenza Sri Monkey, Dogen writes, Sitting is the practice of the reality of life. Sitting is non-activity. This is the true form of the self. Outside of this, there is nowhere to search for the Buddha Dharma. So in the non-activity of Shikantaza, we are allow the non-activity of non-doing to be completely what we are. Which means that the egoic you that always wants to be in control, that wants to do or attain or gain something, is given permission to relax and to settle into non-doing, into not creating new karma. And Guy Armstrong says this about non-doing. Non-doing does not mean that one no longer acts. The true significance of non-doing is that the actions of a fully enlightened being no longer come out of self-centeredness. The self has been seen through so thoroughly that I-making and mind-making have ceased to operate. So there is no longer an imaginary core that actions have to feed or protect. Without the burden of self, the mind is clear and the heart is open. When a situation presents itself, the response from the enlightened mind comes naturally and immediately without premeditation. Wisdom and loving-kindness have become so well established that they are the intentions from which actions spring. Volition still operates, but without reference to the false sense of self. It is the selfless, spontaneous nature of action that takes it out of the field of karma, leading to future results. So in other words, if we can be momentarily free from preoccupations of self-centeredness, and of course the suffering that comes with it, then we can start to discover the spontaneous nature of our response to any particular time. We don't have to be perfect, but just trust that our purity of heart and wholehearted intentions will result in beneficial karma. So, to conclude, if you've been part of this winter ango, and we've been studying karma for almost three months now, and in terms of engaging in wholesome, in a wholesome and noble personal and collective action, studying karma is central to the Buddha's mission of liberating beings and transforming both inner worlds and outer worlds. And the study of karma compels us to ask, is all my activity, activity that contributes to the co-awakening of all beings, is all my activity, activity that contributes to the co-awakening of all beings? Does my activity illuminate for others the freedom that comes with seeing non-self, and hence the freedom from suffering? When you think, intend, as, as 
thinking is a karmic intentional action. You want to act as to make every activity Buddha activity, then this intention is an expression of the Buddha mind seal. So this process of discerning what is and isn't Buddha activity, and then practicing action that is in accord with the Buddha way, is a process of learning the Buddha way. It's the effort we want to make in practicing the Buddha way. The effort is to learn about your intention, your karma, and your activity, and how it's not Buddha activity at certain times. If you see that it's not Buddha activity, then work to change it to be Buddha activity. As long as we have the sense of a separate self, the study of karma needs to continue. Once we go beyond the conceit of separate self, then the study of karma comes to an end of continuation. As the Buddha said, when a noble disciple thus clearly understands karma, the cause of karma, the variations of karma, the results of karma, the cessation of karma, and the way to the cessation of karma, then they clearly they then clearly know the higher life comprising keen wisdom, which is the cessation, cessation of this karma. So we have come to the end. So I want to thank you again for your patience and your uh, kind attention. And uh, I hope the rest of your sushin is coursing deeply in samadhi of just this, with no karmic formations arising. And if they do arise, then seeing through them clearly so they kind of burn off like the fog is now burning off through the sunlight and that you can more deeply see that it's not necessary to continue per perpetuating the sense of a separate self that your eddy of selfing can begin to slow down and the energy diffuse and the flow of your whole being to join the flow, the entirety of life itself. So you can be flowing with reality, which is peaceful, joyful, harmonious with all beings. Enjoy your flow. Enjoy this life. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma Talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfzc.org and click Giving.